Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 101st program in this series. In this program, I'm going into John chapter 17. This is right after the conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, the last conversation that's recorded here in the Gospel of John, before Jesus is arrested. What Jesus does is he begins to pray. John chapter 17 is the prayer of Jesus, or this could be recognized as the Lord's Prayer. But that can be a little bit confusing, because when people think of the Lord's Prayer, they're normally thinking about the example that he gave his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount when he suggested, if you're going to pray, this is how you ought to pray. And I, of course, am emphasizing the point that this is how you are to pray, but it's not necessarily how Jesus is going to pray. So here we have an example of how Jesus is going to pray. Now, this can feel a little bit awkward when you consider that Jesus is God manifested in the flesh, that our God decided to come into this world and to come into this world in a way that people wouldn't even recognize who he really is, that he would come as a man. He would start from the womb and go all the way to the tomb and live a life just as we live a life. There are a lot of reasons for this. Probably the one that I really appreciate the most goes back to when the lineage of the kings began, when King Saul was selected as the king of Israel. It was a rejection of God is what that was. The people decided that they did not want God to be their king. They wanted a man to be their king. But here, when God manifests in the flesh, he comes as the Messiah. He comes as the Savior. He, in effect, comes as a king. And considering that he is a man, he has come to be a man, will they accept him as their king now? Since they said, we want a king who is a man. Okay, so God became a man. Will you accept God now in the representation that he is in? And, of course, the people rejected him. They rejected Jesus as the king. They rejected their God as king once again. So this is one point of view that you could consider when you think about who Jesus really is, especially in the context of God manifested in the flesh and one of the reasons why he presented himself in this way. But he is now going to pray. And if he is God, well, then who's he talking to? He's talking to himself And you might find that to be a little bit awkward. I don't know about you, but on occasion, I do speak to myself, speak to myself in the sense of inner conversations and inner discussion, inner debate, things like that, as I wrestle with different problems and subjects in life. So I personally don't feel threatened by the idea that maybe God might speak to himself. But I think what's more important to think about 
is the fact that God came to live as a man. And when you recognize that, I think it's easy for you to consider that if he's going to be a man, what would you expect a man to do? A man would pray to his God. So, if he's going to live as a man, this should be, you would expect this to be, a part of his life, if you can think of it from that point of view. So this is what he does. He expresses a prayer, and this is John chapter 17. This is the prayer that God decided he would express if he was a man. Now, chances are you're going to find that his prayer is a little different than the prayers that you are probably used to people expressing to God. You are probably very familiar with the kinds of prayers that people express all the time. There are many that have been recorded that you can read or you can listen to on audio or watch on video that you have access to that will give you a wide variety of different kinds of prayers that people express. But I would venture to say that this one is perhaps a little unique that the way that God decides to pray is different from the way that we will have a tendency to pray. Look to see what he brings before his God. And think about this in comparison with what you see other people bring before God. Now, I don't want you to be too distracted by this word prayer. To me, the word prayer is nothing more than a formal word to say that you are talking to God. If you are talking to me, we certainly would not call that prayer. But if you're talking to God, we can call that prayer, that that's just simply a unique person who you are speaking to. But it doesn't mean that there is some kind of unique empowerment or magical properties or anything like that because we call this prayer. Now, in looking at these verses in John chapter 17, you're going to see a lot of pronouns. You're going to see him, he, his, and you're going to see names like the Son and the Father. This opens up the conversation of the Trinity. That's what this will tend to do. And it turns out that there is a lot to say about the subject of the Trinity, of course, because people have a lot of different opinions concerning this subject. I have done a series of radio programs on the subject of the Trinity. You can find them in the radio archive. And at the beginning of this series, I explained that there is no way that I am going to settle the arguments that people have. All I can do is present what I see, what I believe, what my opinions are. But I understand that this is the kind of subject that I'm just simply not going to be able to resolve like I can with other subjects. But this one just isn't one of those. And it's my opinion that the reason why, the main reason why, is because a lot of this really depends on what a person wants to believe. It doesn't necessarily come to an argument of what is the history, what has God really had to say about himself. These are not usually the issues that people are struggling with. In most cases, people are just trying to make sense of what they see. In other cases, they're concerned about what other people might think of them, that they want to hold to these beliefs because they don't want to endure the consequences, the social consequences 
of disagreeing with what other people say. Even if a person says, well, you're not going to be able to understand this, you're not going to be able to comprehend this, you're going to have to just apprehend something you do not comprehend, because if you don't, then I will reject you and say that you are probably going to hell. And there are a lot of people in the world who have this kind of attitude, who have had this kind of attitude for centuries. So when a person says you have to apprehend something you cannot comprehend, we're no longer having a discussion about the truth. We're having a discussion with a bully, is what we're really having at that point. And so for this reason, I am confident I will not be able to settle this argument, because it really isn't one. Or at least this is my opinion. But I have to proceed and give my explanation concerning the pronouns here and the way that things are divided up. All right, now I'm going to start with this. If you consider that your God is infinite in nature, just to have a starting point, let's start with the infinite nature of God. The single person can be described as infinite. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally cannot capture infinite in my mind All at one time. God just did not make me to be able to do that. And I accept that limitation. But with that limitation, that means that if I'm going to know anything about he who is infinite, he's going to have to divide things up a little bit. You know, he's going to have to show me a little bit of himself at a time. Not too much, but just a little so I can understand some small, very small part of who he is. And so to me, when he describes himself as the Father, when he describes himself as the Son, when he describes himself as the Holy Spirit, to me these are just parts, individual descriptions that I can kind of capture in some small ways in my limited ability to comprehend and to understand so that I can grow to know him just a little bit, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more. And collectively, I can assemble these things together and know the one true God a little bit more. Now, I understand that most people will divide this up into different persons, where they say that there are three different persons, of which I totally reject, because from my point of view, when you want to say person, you're talking about three different persons. And when you do, that to me will state that you are referring to multiple gods at that point. And even though I encounter relentless attitudes of, no, we do not believe, I do not believe in three gods, I still end up with the conclusion after the usual displays of what I consider to be intellectual dishonesty. In general, I always wind up with a person who is a closet tritheist. A closet tritheist. That's just my own personal point of view. I'm not stating that this is going to be God's dictate and this is God's opinion. I'm not stating that necessarily. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what I'm saying. I get a chance to say something. This is what I'm going to say. 
So to me, this is a way of my God revealing himself to me in smaller pieces that I will eventually be able to assemble to know that he is one person and to at least get to know him a little bit at a time, which I need to. I have to grow to know him a little at a time. I cannot capture and understand infinity that will never take place. So going into John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, referring to the end of John chapter 13, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. We are now at the end of those words. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now, I have had a lot to say about this word glorify in the previous programs. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it in this program. I'm just going to remind you that what this means is that he may be known. The glorification of God is the revelation of God so that he can be known. So this is the first thing that Jesus has to say. He lifts up his eyes and he says, Now, you can be known, I can be known, we can be known, the oneness of God can be known. The first thing that he has to say, that clearly expresses that it's very important to God that he be known. He wants you to know him. He really does. But you have to know him in the way that he is. Otherwise, your distorted view is not going to get anywhere. And you're not going to know him. Or you may know a God of your own imagination or your own creation or one that someone else imposed on you, perhaps, by bullying you into believing in their God or threatening you that you are going to be rejected by them and your family and everybody who is important in your life. These are the kinds of things that happen in people's lives. You may be able to relate to this personally. But there is a true God, and I really believe that this is to be the most important part of our life existence. Your life existence, my life existence, there should be nothing more of greater value than for you, for me, to know our God personally, for who he really is. So that he may be glorified means that he may be known. Now, there is something to know about your God and how he revealed himself as the Lord Jesus. Again, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And what he expresses here is that he has the authority to give people eternal life. Now, to me, if you look at this from the point of view of God manifested in the flesh, what this means is that God is going to give eternal life to whoever He wants to give eternal life to. And this is in the context of what he did as Jesus. He taught the Old Covenant. He showed us our condition. 
He invoked the new covenant through his forgiveness and his resurrection. He did all of this. And so he has the authority to give people eternal life. He does. He has the authority because he's the one who defines how a person is going to get eternal life. Now, at the end of verse 2, he also says, To as many as you have given to me. And most people will take the position that God has decided who individually will be saved and who will not be saved, that he makes these individual decisions, one person here, one person there. Maybe you get to be one of these people. Maybe you're not. And if you are one of the special chosen people of God that he just arbitrarily decided upon, then you will be saved, to you will be given eternal life. And people think of this as an individual decision that has nothing to do with their decision, that apparently it has nothing to do with your decision. It has to do with God's decision and his decision alone. Now, the reason why most people want to believe this is because they're concerned that maybe someone will decide to surrender to the new covenant who God doesn't want in this kingdom. They also don't want God to give up any of his authority. But from my point of view, he doesn't. When he defines the criteria, when he says these are the rules, anybody want to follow these rules? When he says this is the definition of the relationship I'm willing to have, anybody want to accept that? If you will make a willful, voluntary decision to accept the relationship that he is offering to you, then you are one of those who he has chosen by defining the relationship, by defining the criteria. He said, this is the kind of person that I want in my life. Again, this is the kind of person I want in my life. Are there any of you out there that are kind of close, you know, that are close enough to being this kind of person? And those who are wanting to be that kind of person who is willing to recognize their condition, who is willing to recognize his provision, who will surrender to him, who will repent from their unbelief and believe in their God, embrace the forgiveness of sins, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. Those are the ones who the Father in this abstraction has given to the Son. It's a way of saying that the Heavenly Father, the absolute deity of God, that person is the one who has defined the covenant, And he came as a man to execute it. And when he executed it, which is a play on words because it happened because of his execution, which is about to take place. Through his execution, he executes the new covenant and the kind of person who wants to know their God will then have an opportunity to know their God. That is the person who is given to the Son by the Father because the Father established the definition of the kind of person who he wants to have in his life. So again, in verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
as many as you have given. How did he give them? He gave them by being a part of the creation of the world. There are many people in the world. How many? Well, as many as are willing to surrender and who genuinely want to know him. And so he does retain all of his authority. He doesn't give up any of his authority. He just simply says, look, this is the kind of person I want, and I am not going to give up my authority over my life. Only this kind of a person is going to have a place in my life. Only this kind of a person is going to have eternal life with me. That's the authority. That is the execution of the authority of God. And he will take whoever wants to be a part of his life under these conditions. And then in verse 3, he defines eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. This is consistent with verse 1, where he said that you may be glorified, that you may be known, that the Son may be glorified, that the Son may be known. It's a repetition. Verse 3 is a repetition of verse 1 in the context of the purpose of eternal life and in the context of the definition of eternal life. Eternal life is that they may know you. Folks, eternal life is about you knowing your God, that you may know him. Now, you can perhaps relate to this in some simple ways. For example, does anybody really know you? Anybody? If you looked far and wide, you might find a few people who know you, at least kind of and close enough, and of those who genuinely know you, you probably would like them to be in your life forever, or at least as long as you're physically alive here. Most of those people, you probably want to have in your life. You can relate to this in some simple way. This is a simple way that you could perhaps embrace this. Or perhaps nobody really knows you. Nobody really knows you as a person. But you can understand what I mean by saying that if somebody did, you definitely would want them to stay in your life. Well, this is the same thing with God. If a person genuinely knows him, really does, they know him in the ways that they can, that they can embrace, if they do, why would he want to get rid of them? Wouldn't he want them to be in his life forever? Of course. This is eternal life, that they may know their God, that you may know your God, and that he can have a person in his life who knows him. At least in some ways, obviously not in an infinite way, but to know him enough that he would like them to be in his life eternally. I understand that most people are thinking that eternal life is all about they get to have their own personal sanctuary, you know, their own personal mansion that is so big that it has rooms in it that they will never walk into. And they have an abundance of angels who will be their personal servants and give them anything that they command. 
and that they want to live this way for eternity. That to them, this is the idea of eternal life. Well, folks, I got to tell you, this is not God's idea of eternal life. His idea of eternal life is different. He wants people to be in a relationship with him, not just occupy space in his home. He wants people in his life who genuinely know who he is. And yet there seems to be an absolute abundance of people who are living their Christian lives as if knowing God is totally irrelevant. It has no relevance at all. What do you mean to know God? I just want his stuff. Just give me some real estate and some servants, you know, some angels who can be my servants. And that's it. My servants will take care of me from then on. I don't need to know the Lord. What do I need to know him for? All I need is to be able to live forever and to have some of his stuff, stuff that he doesn't even need himself. That's what we got in the majority of the Christian world. But this is not how Jesus feels about this topic. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 101st program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus began to pray. And what I wanted to emphasize in this program is that God came to live as a man. And as a man, you would expect him to pray to his God. And I explained this in comparison with the popular point of view that there are three different persons. And I have the position that this kind of a belief is a belief in three different gods, even though in general people will not agree with me when it comes to that opinion. In verse 3, Jesus expressed what it means to have eternal life. That eternal life has to do with knowing your God. And I explain this in comparison with the popular belief that eternal life has to do with having a place in the kingdom of heaven and angels who will function as your servants throughout eternity. You certainly will have a place in heaven, and there may be angels who will be of assistance to you. But what is of interest to God is that you know who he is. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net